Hello and welcome to episode 7 of the HPBA podcast. This episode is part 2 of our short series on training in MIS HPB surgery. Uh, in this episode, we had the opportunity to interview Dr. Melissa Hogue, who is uh, currently the director of HPB surgery and director of robotic training. Uh, at the North Shore University in Chicago, Illinois. Dr. Hogue attended medical school at Northwestern University, also in Chicago. She then stayed on there for internship and residency, uh, and she did her fellowship at UPMC. She then stayed on at UPMC as staff and became an integral part of developing their robotic training platform, particularly their robotic pancreatectomy platform. During our time with Dr. Hogue, we discussed the development of that robotic HPB training platform that she started at UPMC and has expanded well beyond at this point. We also discussed the future of robotic HPB training, both for residents and fellows and for practicing surgeons who are looking to expand their skill set to include robotic HPB surgery. We really enjoyed this interview with Dr. Hogue. She was uh, very entertaining and, and fun to talk to, but also it was really a fascinating interview with someone who is really a pioneer in the field of HPB robotic training. So we hope that you all enjoy the interview as well. And without further ado, our interview with Dr. Melissa Hoke. Welcome to the HPBA podcast. I'm here with my partner, Tim, and we're really happy to have Dr. Melissa Hogue with us today. We're fortunate to spend some time with her talking about um, what she's certainly been a part of, the horizons of HPB surgery. So uh, the first thing we wanted to talk about was basically how you got here, um, how you trained specifically with them, even going back to your residency and sort of how you developed the very unique practice that you have now. Yeah. Um, so interestingly, uh, I did my residency at um, Northwestern, and there was sort of like an anti-robotic zealots uh, over there. I mean, uh, Nat Soper was my chair. You know, he was one of the pioneers of laparoscopic right. surgery. So I had a phenomenal base, you know, in laparoscopy, mm -hmm. you know, foregut, um, bariatric, colorectal, et cetera. So didn't really have much robotic training at all. So I remember being in the lab as a resident, you know, tying intracorporeal sutures laparoscopically in order to be better in the OR, and then going to pit, you know, and doing all these robotic cases. I remember my, um, you know, my first robotic case, I was, uh, I did the gallbladder of a Whipple, you know, and it took probably like 35 minutes to get a regular gallbladder out. And I remember being yelled at, I'm pulling too hard. And I need to move more to the left and I was moving my hands and I'm like, but I can't move any further. I can't move any further. And they're like, clutch. I'm like, how do you clutch? You know, and, and I just had no concept and I just felt stupid. You know what I mean? I they, felt didn't, like, they didn't have a five-step curriculum for you. That, that's the problem. <laughs> they did not have a five-step yeah. curriculum. So, um, and then I remember the second case I did, I was, I was sewing a GJ and I had tore six or seven sutures in the process of, <laughs> um, of sewing this GJ and Zay was like, okay, yeah, you know, Moser's uh, tore 12, you know, with his first GJ. So once you hit 12, you're out of there, you know. But I kept, I kept thinking, like, how would we even tolerate, you know, an open surgeon, you know, yeah. tearing one, let yeah. alone six, and letting them keep going. So, um, at, you know, we tracked at Pittsburgh for what type of fellow position we had, and I was the clinical trials fellow. So part of this was getting a master's in clinical research at the University of Pitt during my fellowship. And at the end of my first year, I was taking some of the core requirements and I was looking through courses and there was a curriculum development course. Mm -hmm. And my initial in uh, interest in this curriculum development course is like, hey, I could get another credit out of the way, you know? <laughs> and it was in the Master's of Medical Education. And I thought, well, you know, this would be interesting. So 
um, for my first course, it was or for my first class in this course. It was you know what is a needs assessment? What do you, what does your program need? What is what would make it better? Um, and this whole uh, course was going to be to develop a curriculum. I said, you know, we really need a robotic curriculum. You know, so hmm. there's like this six step process of developing a curriculum. And so each class we went through a step of it, which was kind of like a needs assessment, you know, a global assessment, you know, literature review, etc. And I figured, there's really got to be something out there. I'm sure the urologists, the gynecologists, they've got this nailed. Uh, and this was probably 2011, 2012. Mm-hmm. And in a lit search, there's actually nothing out there on a curriculum, you know, validated or otherwise. And so there, you know, was some, you know, papers here and there about simulation and face validity, construct validity, but nothing really in-depth and nothing in the OR. So that was sort of uh, what I tasked myself with is to kind of figure this out mm-hmm. and had the help of a... Um, you know, a medicine doctor who was teaching the course on, on how to kind of structure this and how to validate it. So it all kind of started as coursework, and I, you know, I put myself through the curriculum. So <laughs> I think life is about timing, you know. So in terms of timing, um, you know, the published learning curves uh, for our Whipples and Distills uh, was hit around 2011. Um, at Pittsburgh, and that's when I started my fellowship. So, mm. you know, it was already at the point where it was not mature, the program was a little bit more mature, so a little bit more right for fellows to do stuff. Mm. And so I think that, you know, I was really lucky in that regard. And then when I, um, when I became attending in 2013 is really where we plateaued in terms of case selection. You know, um, you're, you know, like 20% of cases were doing this way, you know, 40%, 50%, you know, and by the time I was there, it was like 75, 80% of a lot of you know major GI cases were doing, being done robotically, wow. and that's when I uh, you know and that's when I started. So we'd already kind of maximized. So I got lucky in terms of um, you know when I hit my fellowship and when I hit my first um, you know job there. But I was also lucky in terms of when I was a fellow on service. So right after I put myself through this curriculum, I then rotated on the PB service. You know, right. so um, <laughs> you know I ended up being pretty good. You know, <laughs> 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 and then you know and then Zay's like what. You know, have, have, did you do robotics before? I'm like, no. I go, you know, but, you know, I'm taking this class, and in this class I developed this curriculum. So this is kind of just something completely outside that I was just doing. And he said, really? What are you doing? Wow. Tell me a little bit more So about he didn't it. know you were doing this. No. Wow. That is incredible. Yeah, that's <laughs> it really is about timing. Yeah, so anyway, I was on service then for the next 10 weeks. Um, and then, you know, there was, you know, uh, Moser had just left to Boston. Zerkhead had just started. He was out, you know, for some issues at this time. So it was a little bit of a battlefield promotion <laughs> in the fact that, you know, um, I was getting to do a lot of these cases with Zay, and, you know, he was just giving me more and more autonomy at the, um, at the robot. And, you know, eventually after about five or six weeks, I was able to do the robotic Whipples on my own. And then, you know, after that, he started to recruit me, you know, to do this. And yeah. kind of one of my stipulations was I wanted to, um, get my master's in medical education if I were going to take the job um, that I wanted to have a build a curriculum have it supported financially you know by the department and have it made mandatory you know for all the fellows so um, those are kind of my asks and um, they were easily granted um, and that's sort of the beginning you know of, uh, of the five-step curriculum that's incredible I'd like to just take one step back um, if I may just to talk about your training and residency, how you obviously came and were trained under you know, one of the major pillars of minimally invasive surgery mm-hmm. um, with Dr. Soper at, at, at Northwestern. Was there any type of formal curriculum for laparoscopic surgery at that time? Or, what it, or was it something to, you know, what's similar to what I think a lot of people did, which was 
you know, your, your curriculum was a five-step curriculum in the sense that your first year residency you held the camera, the second year residency you got to use one hand, the, you know, just kind of trial by fire, which I think a lot of us did with laparoscopy, and then taking that a step further, you know, talk about the opportunity we have with robotics um, starting this type of a curriculum earlier, whereas we started to do this 20 years after laparoscopic yeah. uh, surgery started. Yeah, that's a great question, I, and I actually am very fortunate that we didn't have a structured curriculum from like a milestone or a um, validated metric standpoint, but we did have a very consistent um, manufactured curriculum. So our vice chair of education was actually a non-surgeon, someone named Deb DeRosa. Um, and so uh, one of the big things uh, for Northwestern, at least when I was there, now it's like Carl's, you know, mm -hmm. regime of, you know, health science right. research and, he, you know, and everything that's going on there. But, but there was a lot of education research. So we basically had um, a Thursday morning, you know, all residents, you know, you have your grand rounds, your M&M, but then there were didactics, um, and there are also technical stuff. So each week you had to do technical training from like intern level to, to chief level. And, you know, FLS was part of that. And then also just, you know, intracorporeal suturing, you know, intracorporeal anastomosis, you know, open, et cetera. Um, and they actually used uh, a residence as teacher's themes for this. And I think this is really an ingenious way to make sort of the manpower uh, extend. So what I mean by that is, yeah, you can't have like attendings down there every week. Right. You know what I mean? Doing yeah. this sort of stuff. But essentially, um, you know, different chiefs were in charge of it. Um, so, you know, I may as a chief go down there and be teaching um, PGY2s, how to endo loop, you know, PGY3s, how to, you know, staple, et cetera. So, um, so we did have a curriculum. We didn't have like graded metrics on it. Um, they probably do at this point, you know, but, uh, but we did have a nice structured curriculum. And I think I was lucky in that regard where, um, you know, we really had an avenue to make ourselves better. And even in the OR, they say you better get to the lab and practice before our yeah. Nissan tomorrow, et cetera. So we had the opportunity um, and we also had protected time to do it, but then you also had time to do it on your own. Interesting. So uh, kind of along that theme, so now you're back to training residents, you know, at UPMC, you were training fellows. Mm -hmm. You developed this whole curriculum for fellows. And now, you know, now you, you might have an R2, probably not in your OR, but in a lot of ORs, right, there's an R2. How have you kind of adapted that? What are you guys doing now? Do you have a different curriculum for the residents? And how have you uh, sort of transitioned this to resident level? Right. So, you know, my, um, my fellowship curriculum was very... Um, was very successful because the fellows were very motivated mm -hmm. in the sense they saw their end in sight. You know, they were, mm -hmm. they were going into practice soon. And uh, really, we let them get a lot of consult time in the OR. So you have that whole carrot in the stick, you know? So like, you force them to do it, you yell at them to do it, you browbeat them to do it, they still won't do it. But if you say you could get in the OR, you could get on the consult more, they'll do it. Um, so I did have this curriculum in place for residents, and I did publish a paper on this, but it was very unsuccessful. It was not mandatory. There was no yeah, protected yeah. time. I think I, I think I wrote down a quote from that that 98% were interested, 60% started, and 18% completed the curriculum. <laughs> that, that stood out from the article. I want to do everything. That's yeah, what I was yeah. I'm glad I didn't try and quote the numbers myself, but I, I, knew, I knew it was less than 20%. Yeah, yeah so I, I would consider uh, my attempt there very unsuccessful. So, you know, what I learned from that, um, you know, I took sort of for my next, next job ask. So when I was looking um, uh, at a, a couple positions, what I wanted to have was from the program director of the residency and from the chair 
a support to do a curriculum, make it mandatory, and have protected time for it. So what I have now is I have a PGY3, you know, Melissa Hogue robotic rotation that's two weeks long. So cool. it's carved out so that the residents don't have any clinical responsibility during that time. They actually do have to take call on the weekends. I can't protect them from that. <laughs> <laughs> but Monday through Friday from 8 to 5, they're mine, you know. Wow. So um, we have a dedicated curriculum like that starts in simulation, does, you know, basic docking, instrument exchanges, but then, you know, does everything from suturing to hernia repairs hmm. to different anastomotic drills. Um, etc and so um, you know we videotape them we you know we grade yeah. them um, and this is this is live model or no, live tissue or bio tissue bio tissue yeah. sorry yeah. so hopefully in new iterations you know of this you know we potentially do live tissue on a quarterly basis etc okay. okay. but my hope so so far it's been very successful I was a little nervous it started in um, December of this year so I you know I had been at the job for just under a year when I finally got a training robot and so we were we were kind of weary on when do we schedule people in the curriculum yeah. before I had gotten there. Um, and I had done a couple um, grand rounds. And, and you know, really the, uh, the residents are mixed out of there between wanting nothing to do with it mm. and being super hungry mm. to learn more. Um, so unlike fellows who know that they're going to utilize it in practice, it's very different for yeah. res residents who may yeah. or may not utilize right, it in right, practice, right. who may or may not do a fellowship and who have like so long of a time between where you're hitting them now and where they may yeah. actually have to do this. And, and also this knowledge of, you know, am I going to be able to sit at the console if I do this? Is there going to be a return on my investment? Yeah. So, but however, luckily the feedback has been great. Um, I've had about five residents go through it so far. And interestingly, you know, the fours and fives who kind of are beyond that PGY three year are yeah. trying to figure out ways <laughs> to get protected two week, you know, two week yeah. block times yeah. to do it. But my hope is to, you know, take all the data from this first year and make a pilot grant and do a push to have like a Chicago wide, you know, robotic training cool. program where, you yeah. know, I'll meet, you know, meet with the chairs and program directors at all the departments, say this is the cost per resident. You know, what is one, your willingness to protect two weeks of your time, mm -hmm. you know, from eight to five to let residents do this. Two, would you do it if it cost X, you know, per resident, or would you only do it if we got grant funding and it yeah. was free per resident? So I think those are kind of the three, the three mm -hmm. big questions to ask. But what I would love to see is, you know, every program in Chicago or a number of them do this. And I think that would be a great way to start getting a lot of data on like yeah. teaching people yeah. advanced skills at an earlier level, you know, using proficiency metrics and how does it a shape what they want to do with their career, you yeah. know, B shape how much um, engagement they get, you know, on right. the technology as a resident and structure just how people are choosing residencies and fellowships, you know, based on what the tools that are offered there. So, so on that, when you're teaching a R3, Right. It's not your goal is not for them to be able to get through a Whipple at the console. No. So what kind of what's your goal for an R3? What's a, a good R3 doing at your hospital where they're actually on the console? Yeah. No. So it's interesting because like at this point, remember, we're mostly simulation, but yeah. like the rest is kind of like a personalized curriculum. So my hope by the end of two weeks is that um, they like have a full understanding of how everything works, you know, the okay. console, the robot, the instrument exchanges, and that they have um, improved competency, you know, with the technical performance of stuff and with tissue handling and manipulation. So I'll usually do a couple mentor sessions throughout 
um, these two week period and the you know the last mentor session will typically be in the OR. So the first time I did, I had PGY3 come in and show the hepatocogenostomy, you know? <laughs> wow. So he comes into the OR and then, you know, there's a chief on service. I'm like, I'm, I hope you don't mind. I'm yeah, gonna let the yeah. PGY3 show this. <laughs> and, you know, yeah. he hadn't done any robotic training. So like at that point he wasn't doing anything on the robot yet. So, and, and the chief wasn't mad. He was actually really excited for the PGY3. So I told him, I said, listen, you know, you have to do like 98 more of these if this one leaks. <laughs> 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 in, in order to improve yeah, your, yeah. your rate of, uh, of leaks. But it did leak. He did great. And, and I just, I really think that, you know, I can, I proved to myself that in two weeks, someone with absolutely no experience wow. can, you know, sew on a robotic whipple. Now, would he be ready for an unsinate dissection? No, no. way. You know what yeah. I mean? But, yeah. um, but there's some things that you could teach at that. So now, kind of that's... Um, Try, what I try to do, you know, kind of the last day or the last two days of their rotation is I let them come in and do like one step of the Whipple, either wow. the gallbladder, the HJ, or the GJ, yeah. um, depending on who, who, you know, if I have a fellow in there, yeah, then I'm yeah. kind of like, well, the fellow's going to want to sew the anastomosis. Right. Yeah. We'll let him take the gallbladder out, you know. But Now, have the general surgeons commented to you that like, you know, they're doing, I mean, are they doing like robotic taps or robotic coles and they're saying, hey, this, this, these threes are really good now? Yeah, or? so it, it, I, we're, we're quite, not quite there yet in the sense. A pit that definitely came out, like with the fellows, yeah. you know, doing other stuff like gastric and colon, yeah. et cetera. But, um, but just with this starting in December, I now have one of the PGY3s who's on a general surgery rotation where they are doing uh, a lot of hernias. Yeah. So I'm like, saw him, I'm like, did you get on the console yet? He's like, this is my first day on service. I'm like, uh -huh. will you tell him you did that robot rotation? <laughs> yeah. And sort of what I do as part of the curriculum is, you know, I have um, every robotic case going on during those two weeks. You know, and I'll just go say, go watch so-and-so do that hernia. Mm. And they ask him yeah. a, lot, a lot of questions, you know, so that yeah. they see them in the OR and they're talking to them, they, you know, and that they see the drills down there to hopefully, you know, um, stimulate the yeah. attendings right. too that they're, cool. they're actively learning to do this. Well, maybe now would be a good time to just maybe kind of talk about the five-step curriculum sure. that you pioneered. And um, I think it was recently published, 2018 publication for our listeners who aren't familiar with that. Um, and then maybe any modifications you've now made in the past couple of years since that publication. Sure. Um, and then any changes between Pittsburgh and now Chicago. Yeah. So, um, you know, the first step is simulation, you know. So I, I, I think that simulation really just masters the console. You know, it's not going to make you a better surgeon. It's not going to teach you how to do an operation. But it'll make you think quicker, you know, um, in terms of which hand to move, which leg to move, yeah. you know, how to toggle, how to clutch, et Are you using the, the ones that come loaded on the, from DaVinci? That's you're, you haven't developed your own magical no, Whipple no, program no. or anything. No, you know what? Like four or five years ago, I tried to get Mimic to do a distal for virtual reality. They oh, have like a, a kidney and then they have yeah, a hysterectomy yeah. and some other stuff. But, you know, they weren't interested. I think just the, the catchment was too low. Uh, but no, it's That'd a good really question. Fun. And right now it's a little bit loaded in the sense that there's now a new simulator from um, Intuitive on the market. So Mimic had made the software, you know, for the SI and then it, they updated it with an XI you know software that have different scoring metrics mm -hmm. and so anyway I actually compare the two at you know the uh, surgical Congress in terms of uh, you know performance on uh, uh, before but now intuitive has aborted that mimic software they're starting their own software this one isn't validated where mimics has been um, and now it's twenty thousand dollars a year you know but it, it has some benefits in 
you know, and that there's like an internet connection and you, it can be modified. You don't have to buy new physical simulators. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're putting a lot of procedural-based stuff. Um, so anyway, uh, yeah, I'm kind of in a, a quandary now because we're getting that simulator. Hmm. And then now do I have to revamp the whole step yeah, one? Exactly. <laughs> Everything so gets I don't reinvented. want to talk about it. <laughs> sore spot, sore spot. <laughs> and then the second step is sort of the inanimate curriculum, which a lot of this is biotissue drills. Mm-hmm. I mean, anything inanimate, like in a dry lab, I mean, you can use vessel loops, you can use, you know, anything really. Um, I do use this company called Lifelike Biotissue, where I, uh, I order a lot of things for like, mm-hmm. you know, blood vessels, bile ducts, um, mm-hmm. pancreas, bile, etc. And then, you know, I have video and PowerPoint, et cetera, um, and have people do these types of drills and we'll have like graded scales for them, you know, uh, to look at where they fall um, for their uh, for their performance. And then the third step is sort of a video library. And I think really watching raw footage, you know, you can learn a lot from. These nice, pretty videos are obviously, mm-hmm. you know, are obviously great. And, uh, and I think, you know, we have a lot of those uh, from just conferences like HPBA right. and et cetera. Yeah. Uh, but seeing some live footage is helpful for people that want to adopt a new technique to see, like, you know, how do they manage this part of an operation. And so I'm trying to th- decide whether I make these public, you know, so yeah. now I've had them private. Yeah, so I have a pri- I now have in the last month a private YouTube that you have to only oh. get links from me. But I, obviously you always have this concern to put stuff out there. Pati- you know, there, obviously mm-hmm. there's no patient information, but yeah. people yeah. Google you all the time. Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> so, so anyway, um, but I use it now for, you know, people I know that are adopting and learning mm-hmm. and asking stuff. So I'll send them yeah. these links. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, step, so step four um, is sort of the intraoperative curriculum. And it has a couple different meanings. Obviously, if you are mentoring a trainee through that, you know, it's a whole different mm-hmm. ball game, yeah. you know, than mentoring other surgeons. And we have a couple good examples of that. You know, one is uh, with our fellows. And, you know, we're able to see that, over the course of four years, you know, the console participation went from about mm-hmm. 40 or 50 percent to about 90 percent wow. on all um, cases. And then for Whipples themselves, it went from about 10 to 20 percent, which is probably like doing gallbladder or a GJ, you know, to doing about 60 percent of the case. And then um, and then, you know, went up from like zero percent doing the actual resection, you know, to about 50 percent doing the actual mm-hmm. resection. And granted, you know, we do try and keep our our, we did try and keep our OR, you know, numbers pretty good. So, like, if it would take the fellow four hours to get the tumor out, you just may resect the whole thing. You know, mm-hmm. Or reconstruct it yeah, all yourself right, in right, an hour right, and a half. Right, right. You know, but maybe if they got the, the tumor out in about two, two and a half hours, then they'd be able to do, you know, at least part of the reconstruction yeah. as well. But, you know, there there are ways to kind of keep the, <laughs> the numbers a little bit low, and that sure. would be one way to do it. Um, but then there's also this, you know... You know, you're not assisting everyone. You know, that's that's out there learning. Right. Um, so we did develop with uh, Netherlands. You know, a um, Lelapse three program. So of course, you know, everyone knows the Dutch love to do trials. <laughs> so for like, for their Leopard one and Leopard two trial, they had a uh, Lelapse one and a Lelapse two, which was sort of laparoscopic distal training, laparoscopic Whipple training. So Lelapse three is robotic Whipple training. And so this idea was conceived in Brazil, you know, at the IHPBA in 2016. And Mark Besseling's quite a guy where within like 
one day, you know, he developed this program and got funding for it. You know what I mean? So like each time I'd see him at the meeting two hours later, I got Johnson and Johnson to give this money. I got yeah. like four surgeons <laughs> from here. You know, by the end of it, it's like, you know, we've got like 10 hospitals involved and whatnot. And at that point, the, uh, you know, people were being randomized to lap and Whipples and they weren't being randomized systematically. The hospitals were just buying robots or not buying robots. So it's yeah. like, you know, Mark was one of the robot, uh, the hospitals that they weren't buying robots. And, you know, um, you know, Quintus Molinar was, uh, you know, the first to do a robotic Whipple over there. And he was at Utrecht and their hospital had just bought that. But essentially, he over the course of like two or three months, um, Mark sent about three PhD students to Pittsburgh who worked with uh, our research assistants to learn like, how to do the curriculum, how to score the curriculum, you know, et cetera. And so this PhD student would actually go from hospital to hospital with like the simulator or the instruments and then the, wow. you know, the bio tissue, et cetera. And they would, they would kind of roll out this program for a month at this hospital, then a month at this right. hospital, et cetera. And then, you know, after they got three or four hospitals up and running, I'd go over there and proctor, you know, the, you know, it'd go over like for a week. And I was like, oh, you're going to Amsterdam for a week. That must be so fun. I was like, it is, but you're like proctoring four whipples yeah. <laughs> five of those days. So it could be exhausting. But I will tell you, it's interesting. Just like, you know, you can't stop progress in the sense that, um, you know, thinking about the first year going there, I think in 2017, and just I went there January 2020, so just a month or two ago, yeah. you know, I would say the first whipples that first time were all over nine hours. You know, mm -hmm. this time I went there they're all like six hours, you know what I mean, or yeah, under. So yeah. that regardless of like when their training was, people are still just kind of getting better on this continuum, you know, with yeah, and without yeah. training over time. Yeah. And I think it's just more experience with pancreas, more experience with lap, more experience with robotic in general, um, that you, you see kind of progress with each, with each visit, you know, mm -hmm. even at new sites, even with different training centers. So, so now that we're kind of closing out um, Lelaps 3, and I think uh, they're working on a paper on learning curves. Mm. And I think they've already done almost about 300 Whipples in this past three-year you know, time with excellent um, morbidity and mortality rates. And so then now the next step is then to have the Dutch train Europe. So LearnBot mm. 1, I think. <laughs> wow. There's all these cool names. I know, I know. I don't know how. So like LearnBot. So it's cool cool. We, were, we were lucky enough to interview Dr. Besseling yeah. a few weeks ago. He seems like a very productive person. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's very impressive how much yeah, he I don't. Done. It is pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, he's just, he's just a, a whirlwind. And I mean, and he's got an army of PhDs. So it's yeah. like, man, I, I have like a 23-year-old, you know, <laughs> that I'm like happy with, yeah. you know, but, uh, but the stuff that these PhD medical students can accomplish is pretty yeah. amazing. But yeah, so, uh, so yeah, I think uh, Mo Halal and him, you know, myself was starting this uh, LearnBot program. So like, come, you know, so all of the European stuff and, um, and then now the proctors will be, you know, from the Dutch, yeah. you know, that'll be able to go over there. And I think that's kind of like the next generation. I, I've just kind of submitted two papers you know, at Pitt, we've done, you know, the first generation learning curves for like Whipple and Distal. So now um, I have submitted the, um, the next generations for Whipple and Distal. So I'm still waiting to hear about, it, about those. They're out there in the ether. But looking to see like if you are kind of like starting from scratch, you know, you, mm -hmm. you're, you're figuring out where to put the ports, figuring yeah. out where to sequence an operation, figuring out how to train your staff, you know, et cetera. You know, how long does it take you, you know, to, yeah. to overcome this learning curve? But if you're just jumping in like myself and, and, you know, this program was what, like 
seven years mature before I got there. Mm-hmm. You know, this was started by, by Herb Zan and Jim Moser. And so I didn't have to start from scratch, right. you know. So yeah. I was able to, you know, stand mm-hmm. on the shoulders of giants as it is to, to then overcome a learning curve at a, uh, with, a, with, a less, with more advantages, I should say. So we're looking at that um, now, at least from Pittsburgh. But the true test is really these centers like the Netherlands are fellows who go out and practice, mm-hmm. you know, other attending surgeons who have taken our courses and are now in practice doing it. I mean, I think that's true a, a true next generation learning curve. Yeah. And, you know, that's my kind of hope for the next five years to kind of capture all the people, you know, that have done some training of mine in the past, you know, kind of create a multi-institutional sort of yeah. program, you know, monitor outcomes and Consortium. look to see what the, yeah, what the pitfalls are and how to, you know, how to really, um, you know, like it's good to have the technology, but it, what's better is to have the patients have the best outcome. And, you know, we don't yeah. want to lose sight for that to say we do robotic whipples. You know, we want it to mean that, you know, our patients have less pain or get out of the hospital sooner or something. It has to be more than just, you know, yeah. some sort of catchy title. So maybe that's a good segue just to talk a little bit about your, your experience with a, a much larger group of people who are uh, trying to push for what you just said, mm-hmm. uh, more evidence-based guidelines for application of minimally invasive surgery for pancreatectomy. And I, I know there's the recent, we have the Miami guidelines mm-hmm. and um, the IMIPS group. Yeah. Uh, maybe we just talk a little bit about, you know, if you were to start to try to apply minimally invasive surgery to your pancreatectomy practice, what, are, what would you recommend um, for surgeons who are trying to do more of this in an evidence-based way? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I think that's what everyone yeah. is sort of wanting mm-hmm. to know yeah. right of now. Of course. And I think, Tell me what to do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think the evidence-based guidelines were great and they're like a starting point, right. you know, to one, um, you know, help give people, one, the, um, the backing to do it from their infrastructure standpoint. Like, look, I'm not out there doing something crazy yeah, by myself. Yeah. Look at these evidence-based guidelines of all these countries and all these societies that are saying, you know, that distal may be the standard of care and that Whipple's safe and that you can do some of these other stuff. So on the one hand, it gets you kind of like a like a foot to stand on in order to start a program, but also with cautionary tales about implementation and mm-hmm. training. So like mm-hmm. for that, I was like a, the head of the steering group on training and implementation. And so we are looking at several factors like hospital volume, surgeon volume, um, training programs, et cetera. And I mean, there's not a ton of training programs out there. You know, um, the, you know, the Chinese and Japanese have some in terms of like sort of more of a, um, I don't know what's the word, sort of like outside of the training realm where you kind of just walk up the ladder, you know what I mean, in yeah. terms of a hierarchy within the system. And obviously the Dutch have had a lot of lap programs and we've had at Pittsburgh the, uh, the, the robotic training programs. But I think, you know, overall we think that when people are starting up from scratch, they should do something. Like there's no reason to like just say, I'm going to do this lap robot whatever tomorrow but I'm not gonna watch someone else do it I'm not gonna make sure mm-hmm. I have any technical skills I'm not gonna have mentorship with this or I'm not gonna take some course if it's offered there the problem is there's not a huge number of courses you yeah. know what I mean yeah, of course but I mean I think there's a there's a lot out there and I was you know like you know port placement like operation sequencing there's a lot of things to think about um, that can be done and so I think that having you know people do at least some sort of training but also have a mind of their infrastructure I'm, so I think one of the issues with the um, Leopard 2 trial that was closed early, yeah. you know, is uh, that before this, everyone had done only about 20 cases, you know, but the published learning curve 
had been more than 20 cases. Mm -hmm. So probably the surgeons were not over their learning curve yet. But two, I think volume also played a huge issue. And I think that, you know, you go from, you know, uh, centers that are maybe doing 20 a year Whipples, and then they're doing lap Whipples. And so maybe their inclusion criteria is 12, you know, and then, then they start to randomize one to one, and then yeah. you go down to six or some, or eight a year. So I think, uh, I think one of the issues uh, with that trial was the volume of the centers with the randomization made the numbers per year pretty low. Yeah. So I would say that, um, that you know, every center in the U.S. or elsewhere doesn't need to be doing MIS pancreas surgery. I think that, you know, the trouble is, you know, someone's doing three or four a year and they're like, well, maybe if I start doing it this way, people will send them to me, you know, and then they do one and then never do one again. And that probably one didn't go very well, yeah. you know. So I think there's a lot of that happening. And if you look at like national database numbers, you'll see like, Oh, there was a thousand Whipples done and at 450 centers. You know what I mean? So, you know, ab median is one per year, you know, yeah. the, the, the five years later, the median is two per year. So oh, I think that, um, I think the national numbers are really just showing, you know, that, that yeah. people are probably yeah. abandoning this technique because of low volume. So I think the biggest thing for people to think of is, is there some way I can get some training before I start doing this? Mm -hmm. And should I be doing this because I have the adequate volume to support this? And let me think of not just my total volume, you know, but how it would be affected by my inclusion criteria at the beginning of my learning curve. But then also, is there a way that I can expand this volume, like partnering with other surgeons within my department. And I think that's one of the um, reasons that um, the UPMC program was successful because when you know Dave Bartlett and Herb Zay actually were the ones who started this early on, they didn't have enough pancreas numbers with just the two of them. So mm -hmm. then they brought in all, every pancreas surgeon, we should all be doing this together. Mm -hmm. And these are competitive people. They weren't mm -hmm. like, you know, they're like eat what you kill in practice. Um, and so I, I'm not saying that every center is gonna have a setup, you know, that allows that. But Pittsburgh didn't either when they did it. And then um, and then now, you know, Bartlett gave all his pancreas to Zay to build this, you know, Moser mm -hmm. brought that in and between the two of them they had, you know, a high volume to, to keep growing that. Yeah. And that's sort of um, you know, at my new center we you know, we have less surgeons, but um, but still a good number, you know, per year and we, we look at all the cases together like, you know, should this be done open right. or minimally invasive and kind of yeah. can we triage that way. So I think those like kind of safety and numbers, you know, both for a number of surgeons and number of cases you're doing. How do those conversations go actually now that you brought that up? When mm -hmm. you're saying should this be done open, should this be done minimally invasive? What are what are what does Dr. Hogue look for? <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I think that um, I think, you know, for pancreas itself is like, you know, pancreatitis, you know, is, yeah, is kind of one of the big things. I mean, granted, I, I will do pancreatitis. I've had a terrible case last week. I have a terrible <laughs> case next week. You know, I try not to think about them. But, um, <laughs> but I, I mean, for someone starting out, I definitely yeah, would say yeah, avoid yeah. that with the plate. And actually, like, um, I think resectable tumors with no vascular involvement, you know, are great. But a lot of times people are saying, don't do PDEX at all. But really having a little bit of a firm gland and a yeah. big duct, you know, um, is a little bit nicer from a reconstruction mm -hmm. standpoint. Yeah. Uh, how, however, you know, ampullaries, um, neuroendocrines, IPMNs. Although IPMNs could be sneaky in that I, I've had gone in, oh, it's an IPMN, and there's like bad pancreatitis, yeah, you know? Right. Um, so I think those are good. I think if you're thinking about distals, um, you know, not starting out with neck tumors, you know? Right. Um, and then I think that, um, you know, doing duodenal cases and maybe not starting out with, you know, transduodenal epilectomies, those can mm -hmm. be a little bit challenging. And, um, you know, I, I think the people that benefit the most 
um, from MIS are the high BMI patients, you know, but, you know, a lot of intra-abdominal obesity can make things, you know, pretty tough um, as well. But I, I think it's, it's a good reason to do it minimally invasive, but hmm. it may be challenging, especially for like, you know, male body habitus. Um, and then also, you know, um, I think that like um, people that are super small as well, like really scaphoid abdomens, mm -hmm. you know, really like that have, you know, a little women that have like their liver falling to their ASIS, and you know, no, no that, space. <laughs> it can be tough. Yeah. And, you know, like, oh, just a small little open incision would make things a lot better. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, for me. Um, you know, I didn't do a ton of liver at Pittsburgh, so now my new job, I'm doing a lot more liver. Mm. Um, so I'm actually being a lot more selective on liver cases, so I'm not doing lobes yet, you know, um, robotically. But I'll do, like, you know, posterior sector, left lateral segment, you know, the gallbladder cancers, anything biliary. Um, but, um, you know, I just haven't found something that I love for the parenchyma yet, robotically, you know, mm. that that to take all that time. Yeah. Like, I'm like an ADHD <laughs> liver and pancreas surgeon. I, you know, I, like the Koreans have all this like meticulous yeah, thing. Yeah, you go yeah, at it for yeah. 10 hours. I don't think Americans <laughs> <laughs> have that same, you know, <laughs> have that same steadfastness. So so I think part of it's like just the time to go through the, the parenchyma that I haven't, um, I haven't like nailed what my favorite device is. I'm just still yeah. using all of them. I don't think anyone has. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, so uh, when you, you said you started doing liver robotic after basically you had left UPMC, did you go, what did you do to, to get over that <laughs> little really, bit of a hump? You yeah. know, I mean, did you go watch yeah, some people or yeah. what did you, yeah, that's a good how point. did you approach that? So before I do lobes, I will go watch yeah, people. Fair okay. Enough, fair enough. So, um, I did do a little bit of liver um, at Pittsburgh, but it's sure. a referral thing, right? So we had a whole set of liver surgeons there. Yeah. And so they did most, most of the HCC and they did most of the colorectal liver mets. Um, so a lot of what we were doing were the pancreas neuroendocrine tumor mets right. and gallbladder cancers. So, you know, I have had um, uh, experience doing minor yeah. liver resection. Yeah. So I think that probably, you know, John Martinis, who I'll ask questions about port placement to, yeah. uh, and also at City of Hope, um, Lele Melstrom, who works with, you, you know, Human Fong, and they do a lot of liver out there. And then actually one of my old fellows, um, uh, Anna, uh, is at uh, Denver. And so she was, um, you know, she was a fellow, I think she graduated 2015, and she does mostly liver, not pancreas, but she's doing a lot of lobes. Um, mm -hmm. And... Um, and so like a lot, you know, um, so I'll probably go out before I do the lobes themselves and, and kind of uh, watch their setup and whatnot. Sure. Um, and then I do watch the videos yeah, you know, from both atlases and online. I was going to ask if you just do what I do, which is go on YouTube or, or the Sage's Facebook group and find a video and yeah. try to replicate that in the well, um, so in, in the spirit of HPV horizons, mm -hmm. what do you see on the horizon for HPV surgery? Yeah, I mean, I do think it's going to be more and more robotic HPV. I, I mean, um, I have nothing against LAP, and LAP's great. And mm. I think that countries that don't have, you know, the, the mm. robotic technology yet or that, you know, the infrastructure to support the payment of that, you know, um, you'll see grow more and more laparoscopy. But I, I think, you know, in Europe and in the States and, you know, in Asian countries, I think we're just going to see more and more um, mm -hmm. robotics. And I think something the company's doing now is leasing the robots, right. you know, and doing pay-per-click as opposed to, like, the capital investments. And we may see see things grow, but it'll be interesting, you know, to see what happens from the insurance side and the coding side um, because that's a whole other issue. But I think there's going to be more and more of that. But I think really that um, 
there should be more pressure on the industry, you know, to support training um, in a way that's not just the way they want to do it. And I think that could be sort of a key role of societies is yeah. to engage the industries, you know, to put on courses that are content led by content leaders in the societies, but funded, you know, yeah. by uh, by industry. And I think that would be win win, you know, for yeah. both is because you know, the societies don't have the money to fund training for everyone, you know, and then right. who would they choose to get that training if they could only choose 10 people or whatever. So I think that's a way is to like have, you know, masters develop curriculums, have societies engage with them and think about a way to roll them out either to fellowship programs, to attending surgeons, but the money has to come from somewhere, yeah. you know, yeah. and, and I think it's not going to come from the hospitals. It's not going to come from the surgeons. Right. It's not going to come mm -hmm. from the societies. So I think engagement with industry to fund these courses that are then your like sages trained or you yeah. know, HPBA yeah. trained or, you know, what, whatever your what society do you think, is. What do you think that would look like? Like if you had, if you had the money, mm -hmm. if Intuitive wrote the check yeah, and yeah. you could design it, you know, would this be a couple days and then you'd need a, your mentor to come fly out and watch you operate or be there for your first case? No, I think it'd be like longitudinal for like okay. a year, you know. Okay. I think what I would start with is um, is flying out and watching someone do the case, you know what I mean? Yeah. Then giving a set of instructions, you know, to do at home. Having then, you know, some sort of one or two day lab work, you know, with pigs initially, then maybe cadavers down the road, you know, and then coming back, you know, for um, refinement, you know, before starting cases, you know, and then having proctorship, you know, for yeah. about the first three cases. And I think, I don't think you need that for everything. Like if you're going to do like a 4B5 liver resection or yeah. a hepatic OJ or, you know, a total gastrectomy or a distal, you know, you may not need that level of engagement, but I think you need to do all those things. And then before you do the Whipple, you yeah. know, you need, I think a little bit more. And, and that's what the um, Netherlands programs do. They were doing like Pustos, although they called them lateral, you know, <laughs> pancreatic ojejanostomies, I think. And then they were doing distals and they were doing some, you know, other liver stuff. So they were getting, you know, some reps in before actually yeah. doing the Whipple. And so next year, 2021, in Europe, there's going to be kind of the second iteration of the international, you know, mm -hmm. uh, evidence-based, minimally invasive pancreas resection. And it's going to be solely based on um, training and implementation. Mm -hmm. So... You know, we're just starting the um, rounds of Delphi and surveys and et cetera for that um, over the next year. So, um, so hopefully, you know, there'll be a, a little bit more um, that has been done, you know, yeah. uh, to kind of advance the field by that time. Great. All right. Well, um, open mic. Anything else you want to say? <laughs> no, thanks, you guys. Thanks for putting this uh, podcast together. I think you'll have to definitely. Um, figure out ways to disseminate to all the HPBA, maybe, you know what I mean? To, yeah, yeah. to get the, the viewership up yeah. and then have people even kind of write in what they think, you know, ideas yeah, yeah. would be, you know. Speaking of which, we'll put a plug in now. So the uh, HPBA has a Twitter handle, has a Facebook page, and the podcast itself will have those as well. So Perfect. that's a good way to engage. If you guys have questions, maybe we can tag Dr. Hogue and she can respond. Sure. Uh, but if you have questions, suggestions, please reach out to us there. But. We know you have places to go, but uh, we appreciate your time. It was yeah, great. No problem. Thank great you very much yeah. for your time. Thank Anytime. you so much.